I would like for us to look into this passage out of Nehemiah chapter 8. That's where this verse comes from. And I just want us to, I want to give you kind of the backstory why I think this verse so uniquely spoke into the people of Israel at that time. If you look at the book of Nehemiah, it's kind of in the first third of the Old Testament. And the book of Nehemiah starts off with this man, Nehemiah, living in a, in a, in a foreign land. The people of Israel at that point in time are in exile. So they don't find themselves in a good situation. They find themselves outside their own homeland, outside their city. They're not in Jerusalem. They're far away. And there's this man, Nehemiah, who hears about Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem being in ruins, the walls being destroyed, people are being scattered. And he is heartbroken over the fact. That's how the book of Nehemiah in chapter 1 starts off. It's a fascinating story of a man who gets troubled in his soul, who seeks the face of God, starts praying about it, then goes to his boss, who's the Persian king, and actually asks for permission to pack up his things and go to Jerusalem and do something about the situation. And it's very strange that even this foreign king who does not worship the God of Israel permits it and even supports it and finances the trip of Nehemiah back to Jerusalem. So Nehemiah is this figure who kind of, this leader, this man who takes up his things and moves back to Jerusalem and he comes with this great vision of restoring the city because it's the city of God. He wants to rebuild the walls and so he starts talking with the people of Israel and he assembles a group and they start this process of reconstruction and there's kind of this uplifting spirit because all of a sudden they find themselves building again the great house of God, the great temple of God, the great city of God. A miracle happens that within a few weeks, actually there is this recongregation of the people of Israel in the city of Jerusalem, which hadn't happened for many, many years. We're talking about the time of 450 B.C., 450 BC, the people of Israel had been in exile and they were turning back home. And then they do something very similar to what we're doing here this morning. They're coming together as the people of God. They're assembling and then there is, the, then there is Nehemiah who's, who's, the, who's, who's kind of in charge of this rebuilding project. And then there's Ezra, the high priest. And then there are some um, some, some other priests kind of bringing in for the first time after a long period of time, they bring in the, back in the law and they assemble together and they all, men and women, congregate together and they listen to the scriptures in their homeland, in the city of Jerusalem for the very first time. They'd only heard about generations before where they had done that. Now they're experiencing it for the first time themselves. So there's this sense of awe. There's this sense of holiness in the room. There's this sense of something new breaking up. There's this sense of hope kind of breaking forth in the midst of turmoil and of a dark past. I'm not going to read the whole chapter to you, but Nehemiah 8 is 
is an astonishing account of a worship situation. It actually says that as they are listening to the scriptures, they start weeping. Because it's, it, it's so fresh. It's so holy. It, it's so personal that they feel like this is for us. This is not just for some other people. This, this, is, this is what God wants to bless us with. It literally says that as they're reading, they bow down and worship the Lord with their faith, faces to the ground. Verse 6 of chapter 8. Wow, what a scene. Worshiping God. Before they were all standing, now they're all down on their faces, praying and worshiping God. And then there is this very short speech, very short speech of Nehemiah and Ezra after they've kind of gone through the reciting of the scriptures. And he says to the people, of God, Nehemiah said in verse 10, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. In other words, this is not just for us, this is for everyone, especially also the poor who don't have enough. This is the day that the Lord has made. Send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve. And then here it comes. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Do not grieve. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. As I'm reading through this passage, as I'm kind of seeing this, this congregation of Israelites there in Jerusalem, praying, worshiping together, being still before the Lord, it strikes me that Nehemiah and Ezra are not saying we can be so thankful for the walls being reconstructed. We can be so thankful for being back in Jerusalem. We can be so thankful that we can now finally build houses in the city of God again. He's not, they, they are not kind of uttering words because of outside circumstances that have changed. But they're actually pointing to the unending, ne never stopping, outside our own experiences, the joy of the Lord being present in all times and that being the cause of our joy. Now, you would normally expect in a, in a service like that, that they are pointing to this new situation, that this is because now the outside things have changed, that we can now praise God and rejoice. But that's not what's happening. What's happening is that they're saying the joy of the Lord is our strength, not the joy of a new temple, the joy 
of a new house, the joy of being back in the city, the joy of returning from exile, that is giving us strength. But actually what the priests are communicating is that despite all the circumstances of our lives, what really gives us the strength is that there's the joy of the Lord in all circumstances. I'd like to unpack this a little bit uh, for us this morning. What, what does that mean? The joy of the Lord is our strength. The first thing I would like to uh, say this morning is that the joy of the Lord is not dependent on outside circumstances. See, there's a big difference between joy and happiness. Now, happiness is very much dependent on outside circumstances. You feel happy when things are going well. You feel happy when life is good. You feel happy when you're on vacation. You feel happy when you've got money on your account. You feel happy when your marriage is going well. And I can go on and on about some outside things that just make us happy. Joy is not happiness. Joy on the other side is not determined on outside circumstances. And that's exactly what we're seeing here, the priest leading the people of God to understand. Yes, outside circumstances have changed. Now we're back in the city. Now things are going well. That's all great. But that's not why we have strength. We have strength not because we're now happy, but because we've got joy, which transcends all these outside things. Do you see the difference? On the island of Mallorca, I meet a lot of happy people. But not very many joyful people. I meet a lot of happy people because this is a happy island. It's a great place. Can have a good time on the island. And I enjoy the island. And I like to be happy. But it's something different to feel the deep joy that is not based on the outside circumstances. Number two, the joy of the Lord can be found in the strangest of places. It's fascinating to read the scriptures and to see sometimes in the darkest hours Humanly speaking, people experience joy. One of my great heroes, and I'm sure yours as well, is the Apostle Paul. In the New Testament, there's an epistle called Philippians, the book of Philippians. When I studied theology, my theology teachers would always say, the book of Philippians is the book of joy. So it only has four chapters. It's in the New Testament, a very small epistle. But it has over and over, it's almost overflowing with the word and the rejoicing of the Apostle Paul, full of joy. Let me just read a few verses. Philippians 1 verse 4, Paul writes, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. 
verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I am full of joy. I rejoice and I will continue to be full of joy. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Chapter 2, verse 2, then make my joy complete, Paul is writing, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Chapter 2, verse 18, so you too should be glad and full of joy with me. I could go on and on through this small letter in the New Testament. There's one line after the other talking about a joy that transcends all outside circumstances. The most interesting fact about Paul writing these letters, he's in prison while he's writing them. It's one of the prison epistles. And let me just make this clear. A prison back then wasn't like a prison today. I've got a friend here on the island who once flew with a helicopter over the prison that we have here in Palma. I don't know if any one of you has been to this prison but, uh, or has seen it, but my friend told me, Chris, this prison, if they ever lock me up, I want to go to this prison because it has a very nice swimming pool. I flew over it with a helicopter and it has the swimming pool. If they ever find me, if they ever catch me, please lock me up in Mallorca and this prison. In the first century, as Paul is writing these epistles, here's how I picture it. There's no food. There's no light. There's no comfort. There's no television. There's no bed. He's locked up. It actually says that they even chained him. Being in the, in, in the, in the prison, they, they even chained him. He, could, he couldn't move. So many believe that he actually verbally kind of transmitted this, this letter, that he dictated it, then that's how it got, got pinned down. Finding joy in the midst of prison, that's counterintuitive. About a month ago, I was in, uh, in San Diego, California, at a conference, and up on stage, I heard the interview um, of a man who was visiting the conference here with us. His name is Mark Whitaker. I don't know if some of you have come across his name, but it's worth Googling um, and looking at some of the videos. Mark Whitaker became very famous in 1995. He was a high, high, high executive in, uh, US, um, in US business and economics and, uh, and got basically tied up and recruited to become a whistleblower with the FBI, which mean, meant underground investigation. They had done as a company very bad things and basically he got confronted and faced by the FBI because his wife turned him in. And he was telling the story on stage that one day he comes home, they're making a lot of money. He's becoming filthy rich doing all the stuff that they're doing as a company. And one day he comes home and his wife tells him there's a good news and there's a bad news. The bad news is you're going to prison. The good news is I'm going to stay with you. He 
ends up, you know, being recruited then by the FBI to do an undercover investigation. Um, Matt Damon, by the way, featured him in a film, in a Hollywood movie, if you want to check that out. He stands there up on stage and talks about being in prison for nine years. He had to go to prison. His wife did not leave him. She actually moved around to three different states, always living close to the prison that he was incarcerated with for nine years. Wouldn't leave his husband. He was not a Christian as he entered the prison cell. But one of the things that he said that kind of burned itself into my mind there, what I heard a few weeks ago, he said, in prison, I became a free man. As a wonderful ministry, preaching the gospel to inmates in prisons. But I've never heard it voiced like he did it. He stood there and said, in prison, I became a free man because I met Jesus Christ in prison. He experienced the joy of the Lord, even though he was incarcerated. That's not intuitive. That's not how we think. That's not how we want our lives to go. But that's a reality that we can experience if we get to know the joy of the Lord. You can experience the joy of the Lord in the strangest of places. The next thing I would like to say, the joy of the Lord can be found by the strangest of people. Remember years ago, from our ministry in church back in Germany, we wanted to go on a mission trip to Congo, to that African country, which is not a tourist destination. In fact, one of the things we very clearly communicate before we went on that mission trip, that it's dangerous to go with us. But we kind of felt to, compelled to communicate as Christians, we don't just go where it's nice. We go where we're called to and we feel called to. So I had assembled a team of people who wanted to go with me to the Congo. There's this city, Goma. It's on the border of uh, Rwanda, East, Eastern Congo, which is very famous in the world um, for uh, lots of rebels that are nearby. They always have conflict. It was part of the genocide uh, story in Rwanda. Lots of people migrated over to the Congo. Um, in fact, uh, the city of Goma is the capital of rape, which is made it very, you know, also difficult to recruit people to let's, you know, come with me to the capital of rape. But we felt called to go and help a local church and a local school and a local hospital. Back then, we were doing services in the city of Frankfurt in Germany in a, in a big movie theater. Um, Sinister Metropolis, downtown Frankfurt. And just two weeks before we were supposed to have our last service, our commissioning service, and then as a team fly to the Congo, I meet with the manager of the movie theater. And we're just meeting over, over coffee or, um, uh, w w one day uh, after lunch. I went for coffee and, uh, and I was just, it was a business meeting because I just wanted to kind of fix our schedule for doing services after the summer back in the movie theater. And uh, that woman, the manager of the, the movie theater, she, she had never been to any of our services. She did not really know anything about uh, church or our ministry, but she was very nice. And we had, had a, a conversation. And as I was telling her that I'm about to go to Africa, she said, I love Africa. 
I said, you do? Yeah, well, I love Africa. I said, where have you been? Well, she's been to South Africa and she's been to Egypt and nice places. And uh, I said, well, I'm going to the Congo. You're going to the Congo? I said, yes, we're going to the Congo. You want to join me? She said, well, why not? Long story short, within two weeks, we managed to get her a visa, which is also a very complicated process. And so the, the big day came. We left as a team. We flew to, uh, to Rwanda, took the bus up to, uh, from Kigali up to Giseni, went over the border to, to, uh, to the Congo. She's part of this church team all of a sudden. Now, she'd never been, which she told me, she'd never been part of any church. She'd never been to a worship service, which is unfortunately very common nowadays in, in Germany that People don't have that as a, as a tradition anymore. So we're, we're, we're working with the, with the school, we're working with the church. We're staying at a pastor's home. The whole team, the pastor kind of just had us all stay at his place. And it was not a fancy place. About mid-week, uh, this uh, manager, uh, her name is Christine, she got very nervous. Because what she hadn't told me is that, <clears throat> that her background is actually Belgium, Belgic. And perhaps some of you know that there's a, <clears throat> there's a colonial history <clears throat> in that part of the world. And, <clears throat> and so anyhow, she finds out that there may be some difficulties of her leaving the country again on her passport. So she becomes very worried and and full of anxiety and she starts stressing me out and the whole team out and the past out and she's stressing everyone out. So the pastor does something which only a, a nice pastor can do. He invites her to come and join one of the services at 6 a.m. in the morning. So apparently there's this church and every morning at 6 a.m. they have a worship service and they come together and pray. So he just invites her to come to the service. Now this was midweek, we, had never, we hadn't even had a normal service, uh, you know, saying alone a, an early morning service and, and, and she gets up and I actually brought you a picture of that, uh, of, of that uh, service. Uh, yesterday I found, found one of the pictures here um, th that, uh, of, of that uh, service. She gets up, I'm sleeping. Okay, I, I'm not getting up at six o'clock in the morning for a worship service. So I'm sleeping. I'm sleeping in. By the time I get there, which was like 6.30, because I'd missed the beginning, I walk into that service and I can't believe my eyes. I see her, Christine, in the middle of the church and this is not the scene, you know, this is just me later taking a picture, but she's staying in the middle of the church, and there are like, I don't know, 40 people all around her and praying for her. And they're, you know, laying hands on her the, the African way, like very touchy-feely, like, you know, let's get, let's get going, let's pray together, they're praying out loud. There I see uh, this white lady uh, from Belgium, Germany, who's never been to church, she, I'm standing, and my heart kind of like, oh, wow, Perhaps a little bit too much for kind of a first day in church. <laughs> but here's what happens. 
She walks out of that church, her first service, a six o'clock a.m. service in some African village. Never really heard the gospel, never really been around Christians. But she's beaming because she's experienced the joy and the peace of the presence of God in her life. It totally changed how she felt and how she sensed this whole mission trip. If you'd asked me before and if something like that could happen, would happen, I would have told you not on the world. She's German. <laughs> She's Belgic. We're not that emotional. We don't convert that quick. It takes more. More reasoning, more arguing, more more whatever. You can experience the joy of the Lord in the strangest of places and it can be experienced by the strangest of people. Next one. If you're filled with the joy of the Lord, it spills over. I don't know if you've experienced that being around a Christian, another brother or another sister in Christ, and you just sense that there is something so special about their presence with you and how they minister, perhaps not just through words, but just through their presence, that it just kind of, it, it communicates on a different level with you. Last year, I spoke at a, at a conference uh, in, the, in the U.S., in, in Colorado. And I met a, I met a man who's, who's quite famous. Uh, his name is Nick Vujicic. Uh, he's from Australia. He's a man uh, born 1982, um, background Serbian immigrants from Yugoslavia. His uh, father actually was a pastor. Nick was uh, born with, a, with um, a rare dysfunction of his body there. He, had, he was born without any hands and without any feet. In fact, I've come to know his story better. He's written some books and he's delivered lots of uh, talks around that. Um, that at the beginning when he was born, his, his mother actually refused to stay with him in the hospital. They couldn't believe it as parents. They were so shocked when they saw him. He was bullied in school because of his medical condition. And as a teenager, he tried to commit suicide and drown himself in a bathtub because he did not want to continue living. While his parents initially struggled with grief and confusion about his condition, they raised him, though to look at the bright side of life and to experience God. I spoke at the conference and he was also a speaker and so he was in the front row just right about where you were sitting. I, I spoke, this was a large conference, many, many, many people I spoke and I had not met Nick personally yet, but I spoke and I tried to give it my best effort to kind of communicate 
uh, that day. And as I finished speaking and came down from the platform, he looked at me and said, what you just said, I will remember for the rest of my life. Now, for me, that was powerful because I knew that he was a communicator and that he'd spoken in front of many people. That's a rare compliment. Um, we, we had a conversation and then we ended up having uh, dinner together. Actually, I bought a picture that I took that, that evening with me and, me and Nick. We spent about three hours together that evening and he told me his story in detail. I told him my story and and I can just tell you, just by being with him, I just felt so encouraged in my own soul and spirit. I really deeply sense that he has the joy of the Lord present in his heart and soul. And by now he does have a ministry where he speaks to teenagers and students at schools and in stadiums and he travels around the world and and, and he delivers a message of hope, and it is the gospel that he communicates. But it's one thing to see someone up on stage, and it's another thing to just experience someone just on a personal level encouraging you. I felt that evening that he does have the joy of the Lord very deeply inside of him, and I get to benefit. Have you ever felt that with someone who has the joy of the Lord, that it almost like spills over. There's this deep underlying peace that surpasses all understanding, that is much deeper than any outside circumstances, and you kind of get to tap into that just by being present. By the way, that's why I believe it's so important to come to church on Sundays. Because sometimes life is just so tough, on us or on others, that we need the presence of God in and through others to minister to our own hearts and souls. When, when we don't sense the joy of the Lord in our own soul, we need some brothers and sisters around us who really minister to us through their spirit and through their soul. The last point I want to make this morning is that the joy of the Lord carries you in the face of of death. The joy of the Lord carries you in the face of death. Remember I told you at the beginning that uh, Lauretta experienced this week how her father passed away. The last few, or about a, about a month ago, um, a very close friend of mine, one of my best friends back in Germany, he also lost his mother. And prior to his mother actually passing away in the hospital, uh, they as a family were going through a very difficult situation because his mother wasn't very old. Um, she had had cancer last year. She actually survived it all well, but her immune system wasn't strong enough again. So she kind of felt sick a few, a few months ago, and, uh, and they actually had to put her into, a, into sleep. How do you call that? Into, into a coma. And, uh, and they were hoping that through the coma, she would kind of get back on her feet. Her body, body would heal and they would give, give her all kinds of medicine, but it didn't seem to get better at all. 
So for about three, four weeks, my friend Daniel, he called me almost every day because he felt like he needs some, some guidance, some help, some support. And he was kind of the pillar now in the family, even though he's the son, the father is still alive and there are others, but he kind of became more of the kind of the central figure also in determining how do we proceed here as a family together. At the end, Ute, his mother, passed away, surrounded by the family. They actually for five days stayed with her in that little room in the hospital, accompanying her while she was dying. They had basically turned off the machines because there was no way she was going to get back and be well by herself. Emotionally very, very difficult. We as a family flew over and actually attended the funeral of Ute, and I spoke with my friend Daniel, and let me just say, even though this was a very, very tragic loss, I so deeply sensed the spirit, the peace, and the joy of the Lord in that family. Because in the face of death, they actually did not draw back, but lean in. That it, they did not draw back from God and kind of start accusing God, why is this happening, why is this now also bad, but they actually leaned in with their minds and with their spirit and with their conversations and actually opened themselves up to be ministered to and experience the comforting presence of God in the midst of death. And the reason I'm saying that, that is because I've also been with families and seen families where that's not the case, where they're experiencing death. Death, death is inevitable. We, we all know that as much as we want to avoid it in our society and kind of push it away and kind of have other people take care of it. Death is part of life, our lives, your life, your family. Death is a reality. It will happen. It is happening around you. Have open eyes and see it. And let me just tell you, it makes a huge huge, huge difference whether you experience the joy of the Lord in the midst of it. The people of Israel were instructed by Ezra and Nehemiah as they were grieving and as they were weeping. The joy of the Lord is your strength even in the midst of death. So let me close uh, the sermon today. We want to actually celebrate communion together. And I will give a special invitation on what I think we should be doing when we celebrate communion. But I want to ask you very personally, as I've been sharing this morning about the joy of the Lord. Nehemiah 8 verse 10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so let me ask the question, is that the case? As you're sitting here this morning, Sunday morning in a little church on the island of Mallorca. I don't know how you stumbled in, how you woke up, how your life is going at the moment, but can you say that about your own life? Can you say that about you as a human being? That the joy of the Lord is your strength. Can you stand up and affirm that in front of me and in front of other people and say, yes, I am not leaning on money, on happiness, on uh, outside circumstances, I'm actually leaning 
on the living God, who is my joy. I would like for all of us uh, to stand. And we, we, we will sing a, a song in a moment. And we're leading up to communion. And I will say a special invitation for us to not just take communion, perhaps as you've done it many times before, where it's just a ritual or where it's just something you do at church. And perhaps you're here the, for the first time and you don't even know what communion is. But let me give the brief illustration that communion today is actually an outside symbol of us taking in Jesus Christ. In a very simple, basic way, what is communion? We're taking the bread, we're taking the wine, which are symbols of the body of Christ, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. And what are we doing? We're putting it into our mouths, into our body. And I want to invite you today to literally take Christ, the peace of Christ, the spirit of Christ, the joy of Christ into your own body and being. I would not be here this morning if I hadn't done this in my own personal life. I wouldn't be here testifying and giving, giving this sermon if this wasn't a reality that deeply has shaken of who I am, who we are as a family, who we want to be as people of God. It is a reality that we can experience despite all circumstances that we're going through, all outside circumstances. We can, in any and every moment, be filled with the joy of the Lord. Let me read a, uh, a text by a young African pastor from Zimbabwe who actually uh, got killed for his faith in Christ. He writes, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. My die has been cast. I stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and drafted goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, am uplifted by prayer and labor by power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few, my guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or minder in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, 
preach till all know and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. Do you have the joy of the Lord? Do you have the joy of the Lord in your lives? 